0: So, Father, we ask this morning, according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit and our inner being. We ask that the word of Christ would dwell richly in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love. and we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and we would be filled with the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him, Jesus Christ, be glory in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. So, Father, we bring ourselves to Your Word. We sanctify us now in the truth of your word. Would you edify your church and glorify your name? Would your face be all that we see and your glory be all that we seek. Holy Spirit, have your way. Nancy sings in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles. Gospel of John chapter 1 uh, is where we'll be this morning, verses 6 through 13. Uh, if you're our guest, my name is Taylor. I serve Your Cross' lead pastor. And through the Advent season, we've been spending our time together in John's gospel, chapter 1. Been here for a few weeks, and Lord willing, we'll wrap this up together on Christmas Eve uh, next Tuesday night. So John 1, again, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 13. Uh, throughout my life, I've always had a lot of interest in the history of the space program, its development in the 1950s and 60s. And so, several weeks back for my birthday, Emily got me a couple of biographies on the uh, Apollo missions that I've been burning through really quickly. And when you Think of the Apollo missions. You think of man going to the moon. You probably think first of Apollo 11, the first man mission to the moon that landed on the moon, footprints on the moon, and uh, the famous guys Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin—not Buzz uh, Lightyear—Buzz Aldrin, uh, first men to step foot on the moon. And uh, but what's less likely known, less widely known by those of us who weren't uh, privileged to be alive to witness those things firsthand. Uh, is that while Apollo 11 was the first manned mission to land on the moon, it wasn't the first manned mission to the moon. So trivia question, who knows what it was? It was Apollo 8. Very good. And so Apollo 8, uh, in many ways, is just as historic of a moment because until that time, mankind had never uh, completed a lunar orbit, had never been to the far side of the moon. So while it wasn't as significant, maybe, as putting footprints on the moon it was still an incredibly significant mission because it helped to set the stage for the Apollo 11 but the the achievement and the magnitude of Apollo 11 was so great uh, that oftentimes Apollo 8 is forgotten so uh, Apollo 8 initially was not supposed to be a lunar orbit mission but a couple of setbacks in the program and under the pressure of the space race NASA es- expedited the plans for lunar orbits and Apollo 8 became a moon moon mission on just a few uh, months' notice. So the crew, which included uh, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders, was initially supposed to be on another mission, but they were better qualified for the objectives that NASA wanted to accomplish on Apollo 8. So uh, when they discovered they were being fast-tracked to the Apollo 8 mission, initially there was a little bit of a disappointment because they knew that was going to give them a lesser chance of being part of one of the manned missions that landed on the moon. But all of the men understood that it was an important and necessary step that was going to pave the way for all of history. So they fully committed themselves to the mission, selflessly embracing their responsibility to prepare the way for those who would walk on the moon. And when we get to John 1, 6 there's a figure introduced to us who could easily be overshadowed because his role was simply to prepare the way. The first five verses of John dramatically introduce us to Jesus Christ, who we are told is the Word, capital W. He's the Logos. He's the eternal and incarnate word of God who has come to us in the flesh to dwell among his people that we could know that he is the Christ. By believing in him, we can find life in his name. And that introduction to Jesus is immediately followed by an introduction to a lesser figure, but one who is significant nonetheless. So this is John 1 uh, verses six through eight, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now understand, this is not the John who wrote the gospel of John. This is uh, John, the writer of this gospel, introducing us to a different John. There was a man sent from John, God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So just to give you some context and background to this, if you're not familiar, when the nation of Israel gets to the beginning of the first century AD, there had been more than 400 years of prophetic silence among God's people. Now, you you look at your Bibles, you look at the end of the Old Testament with the prophet Malachi. It's the beginning of the New Testament. Most of our Bibles, it's maybe a, a half page, a full blank page, and then you just jump to the New Testament. But in the actual time and space of history, these were centuries of silence, prophetic silence, among the people of God where no prophet had appeared on the scene to call God's people to repentance, to remind them of God's covenant promises. But that silence is then emphatically shattered by the arrival of a man known as John the Baptist. So again, if you don't know about John, uh, scripture shows us that he was actually a physical relative of Jesus. We learn early on in the Gospel of Luke that Elizabeth, an older cousin of Mary, was pregnant with uh, John while Mary was pregnant with Jesus. And Luke tells us that John was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, that he actually leapt in Elizabeth's womb when Mary came to visit her. And in an ancient culture, when there was going to be a visit from a king or someone who was royal, uh, a person who was known as a forerunner would go out before the king, before his arrival, to instruct the people to create a clear path in the roads and to prepare themselves for his coming so that they could pay the proper respect. And the Old Testament prophesied Malachi 3 as this forerunner, a final prophet who was going to go before the Messiah to prepare the way and lay the foundation for his coming as Israel's promised savior and deliverer. And this is the role of John the Baptist. He comes before Jesus as the forerunner. If Jesus is the Apollo 11 landing on the moon, John the Baptist was Apollo 8 that was setting the stage For his coming. So John explodes onto the scene. He immediately garners this massive following. He's preaching way out in the wilderness, totally disconnected from the materialism and the the wealth of the modern day religious system. He's way out in the wilderness, but people are coming out to him in droves to hear his teaching and to hear his message and to be baptized by them. And this was his very simple message to them prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, and repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." This was the message that was preached by John the Baptist as he prepared the way for Christ. This is the same message that was preached by Christ throughout his ministry when he comes onto the scene, and this is the exact same message that Christ calls his church to preach and proclaim today as we await his return to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So for those of you following along in your notes, what we'll see here right away from John 1 is that like John, you and I as the church, as the body and bride of Jesus Christ, we are sent as witnesses of the true light. We are sent as witnesses. And these are both very important words. This word sent comes from the same Greek word that we get the title apostle, so it emphasizes a, a specific calling or commission that's been given to someone. And the word witness emphasizes legal courtroom language of giving testimony to what we know or what we've seen or what we've heard. And that's what John's doing at the beginning of his gospel account. That's what he does at the beginning of his epistle. First John is he testifies to what they have seen and heard and known. It goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So John calls Jesus the true light. The true light was coming into the world. And this is not just to contrast Jesus as the true God in comparison to every false God, but to set Jesus apart from everything that's just a shadow, everything that's empty or shallow or fake or superficial. He comes as we sing during the Advent season as true God of true God, or as the Apostles' Creed renders it, very God of very God. So like John, we are witnesses. This is the role of the church. We are witnesses to the reality that the true light has come. But as we go and witness, we have to understand that there are a few different responses that we might encounter. So we have been sent as witnesses of the true light. And as we've been sent, first we need to, rec- we need to understand that some will not recognize the light. This is what John says here in verses 9 and 10. He says in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. John reminds us that Jesus was in the world, God had come to us in the flesh, Christ was in the world, and in fact was the creator of the world, and we've been so blinded by the darkness of our own sin that we have not recognized our own creator. And this takes us all the way back to where we were last week in, in verse Five, how the darkness was unable to comprehend the light. It couldn't understand the light and how our reason, our understanding are so darkened by our sin that the light becomes an altogether foreign substance that we are incapable of Recognizing. So, uh, Gideon, who's our oldest son, he just turned seven a couple weeks ago. He's really interested uh, in war history. So, he's got several books on uh, the American Revolution, the Civil War, both of the World Wars. And uh, I've got family who live in Chattanooga, not far from the Chickamauga battlefield. So, my grandmother uh, sent this CD to Gideon. It's an oral retelling of the history. Uh, it's a reenactment, so to speak, of, of, the, of the battle there at Chickamauga. And so, when we gave it to him and told him what it was, he listened, but he had this confused look on his face and he looks down, he looks up at us and he says, what's a CD? And, and, and so you know, it just dawns on me like this is, this is foreign to him. This is new to him. And so I sat there for a few minutes explained to my seven-year-old son, you know, this ancient relic from the 1900s, you know, what you do. And he thinks it's amazing. He's like, you can put this in the car? I'm like, yes. He's like, your, your car has a CD player? I'm like, yes, my Kia Forte has a CD player. I'm so excited. I'm like, it's got more power than probably what's under the hood. And so he's, he's pumped about it. And we're listening to it to and from school, but it took a little bit for him to understand what it was that was given to him because that's not the world he's living in right now. He, he lives in the world where we just, we go to iTunes, we download it real quick. We go to YouTube, we listen to it real quick. And to have this, this physical copy, he, he just didn't even know how to begin with this. And we have to understand as we share the message of the gospel, this is going to be the response of many. They don't recognize it, that this is the world that we live in. The Apostle Paul says that there's the confusion that comes from a lost and dying world as they encounter the light of the gospel. Paul writes in Second Corinthians 4, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, He says, even if it's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And this is how it's being veiled. This is the work of Satan, he says. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel is difficult for our world to recognize because it's totally foreign and countercultural to what comes natural to us. So Satan works overtime to keep our eyes veiled. And as we go as his witnesses, we have to understand that we are going as strangers and foreigners who are not of this world. And there are going to be many who don't know what to do with this message when they hear it. John continues verses 11 and 12. He says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we've been sent as witnesses to the true light. We need to understand that some will not recognize this light, but we also need to understand that flatly some will reject the light. His own people did not receive him, John says. Where John uses for receive carries with it this sense of of being welcome to stress that among his own people, Jesus did not receive a welcome reception. He faced a hostile rejection. This is a key distinction here. There's a big difference between ignoring something because you don't recognize it and ignoring something because you reject it. The world as a whole, in a general sense, could not recognize the light. The God of this age has blinded them to the light. They don't really understand the light or know how to comprehend the light or what to do with the light. But John gets really specific here. Jesus came to his own people and they rejected the light. So let's uh, honest group participation here. We're gonna do this by show of hands. Uh, two, two different times, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna lift our hands here and just we're, we're gonna do a little, little group therapy here for, for just a moment. Um, I want to ask, how many of you have gone into a store before? This is an honest mistake. Like, you've gone into a store, and you've walked directly past someone without saying anything to them because you didn't initially recognize who they were. How many of us have done this before? Okay, pretty much every hand across the room. So, all right, let's, let's turn this up a little bit. How many of us have gone into a store and intentionally walked the other direction because we saw someone, and we did recognize them and didn't want to talk to them? How many of us there? That's fantastic. All of us here. Okay, be honest. How many of you have done that to me? I'm just kidding. I won't won't go there. So um, there's a big difference here. The, The world, in a very general way, did not recognize the light, didn't know what to do with the light, couldn't understand or comprehend the light. But the indictment Christ is always leveling against the religious elite of his day is that they do see it, but they're choosing not to believe it. They're rejecting it. According to Jesus, the problem wasn't that they couldn't see. The problem, Jesus says, in Mark 4, Matthew 13, is that they see, but they don't really see. And they hear it, but they don't really hear it. They see him physically with their eyes, but they reject him spiritually in their hearts. And they willfully embrace the darkness and reject the light. And in doing so, they put life himself to death. John Piper has a a fantastic little Advent devotional that I, I worked through uh, each year called Good News of Great Joy. And, and this past week, I was reading his reflection from Matthew chapter two about how there's really two different ways that we can reject Jesus. That we can reject Christ either through outright hostility or we can reject Jesus through passive indifference. So when you look at the, the accounts of, of the, the Advent accounts in, in Matthew chapter two, the coming and the birth of Christ, you see a couple of different responses. The response of Herod is a response of hostility. He's hostile to the announcement of Christ's birth. He is threatened by the rumor of another potential sovereign, so he issues a decree, which was the death of young boys all throughout the land. And I think for most of us, when we think of rejecting something, probably what comes to our mind is an action of hostility. But the way the religious leaders rejected Christ wasn't through outright hostility. It was through passive indifference. Herod responds by getting hostile, issuing a decree, putting people to death. But how do the religious leaders respond? They do nothing. They do absolutely nothing. There's been 400 years of prophetic silence in the nation of Israel. They've not heard the word of the Lord through a prophet. And yet here comes the announcement that a potential Messiah has been born. And what do they do? They do nothing. They're completely indifferent to this news. You know, I think, church, if we just took an honest assessment of our community, you know, I I find this to be personally true, that there's not a lot of outright hostility to the gospel, but there's a whole lot of passive indifference to the gospel. Just this past week, I was getting my hair cut, and the person cutting my hair was kind of sharing their, their faith story and their background and some of the, the struggles that they had, you know, with the church. And, and unfortunately, you know, it sounded like just a really ugly background where they had kind of grown up in just a lot of uh, do good, try harder uh, legalism and, and moralism, just no understanding of, of grace and the good news and the message of the gospel, and said so the opportunity to share the gospel, and, and you hear the response to that. You know, it's just, it's not an outright hostility, but it was very much just a passive, like, hey, that's glad you found that. That's not really going to be for me. Tried that, and I'm moving on. But church, we've got to understand, while the, the rejection of Christ might not look hostile, that this passive indifference is without question just as deadly. This is explicitly what Jesus warns against in Revelation chapter 3. What is the indictment against the church in Laodicea? They're lukewarm. This is the indictment. They're lukewarm. They're indifferent. And what does he say to the lukewarm church in Revelation 3.15? He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I think the message that Jesus has for his church today in Bible Belt South in the United States of Laodicea is this, do something with Jesus. We have to do something with jesus either your heart needs to be set on fire for his name and you're given a passion for his glory or you you are cold and you're distant and you harden your heart against him in rejection but there is no room for in between and, and sometimes when I, mean, I i can look at my own life i look at just the church at large in our culture and i, I just wonder at times and i tremble thinking how much longer is jesus going to keep up with the lukewarm church How much longer will he tolerate a group of people who are content to be known as Christians in name only? And the warning from Christ for those who reject him, either through passivity or through hostility, is not subtle. This is from John 3. We find in John 3, verses 16 and 17, maybe the two most famous passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. Most of us have have probably heard it at some point in time, but sometimes I fear we don't pay attention to what Jesus also goes on to say in verses 18 and 19. This is the good news. This is the the proclamation of the gospel, the announcement of the gospel. This is your Bible in a nutshell. This is the good news of the gospel in a nutshell where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that this is the love of the father. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he says, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world That's not why Jesus came. Jesus said the the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, to give up his life as a ransom for many. So he didn't send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is why Christ has come. And so he promises, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But here's the warning. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And here's the judgment, Jesus says, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And we have to understand that that indifference is just as deadly as a passive hostility against him. Verse 12 and 13, though, John gives us a great hope. He says, but to all who did receive him but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who did what Jesus said, make sure you do this. Believe his name. Those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. So the, the true light has come. We have been sent out as witnesses to the true light. As we witness to this light, we have to understand some won't recognize it. We have to understand that some will reject it outright. But the hope we hang on to is that there will be some who receive the light. There will be some who see the light and they believe it and they receive it. And there's a couple of places in the New Testament where we see these responses really uh, underscored. where We see multiple responses to the message of of the gospel. So uh, the first is in the parable of the sower. So uh, turn with me really quickly here um, in your Bible, Gospel of Matthew, and let's look at chapter 13. And uh, just for the sake of time, what we're going to do, we're going to read verses 3 through 8, which is the telling of the parable, and then verses 18 through 23, uh, which explains the parable. So multiple responses here to the gospel. The words of Jesus, Matthew 13. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away, and other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good ground and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then he goes down, verses 18 through 23, and he explains this parable. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That's what Paul said the God of this age is doing. The God of this world, Satan, is preventing people from seeing the light of the gospel. He's trying to put blinders on their eyes. He says this is what's sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself. But endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So this is someone who hears the message of the gospel. Man, that sounds great. I want to jump into it. But the moment it gets hard, the moment it costs something, the moment it requires sacrifice, the moment it challenges us, we fall away because there's no root of faith in the heart. He says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So again, there's interest, there's a desire there, but someone's too in love with the material things of this world, too in love with their comfort, too in love with their possessions, too in love with their standard of living and not willing to sacrifice any of that for the name of Jesus Christ and ultimately do not understand the word. But he holds out the hope here. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands that he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. We see uh, similar responses in Acts chapter 17. So those of you who went through our three circles training this past summer, conversational evangelism, we talked about how there's uh, three potential responses to the sharing of the gospel, that some may give you a red light response, or like absolutely not, not interested. Some may, a cautionary yellow light, like, hey, I'm interested, but I need to talk about this a little bit more. And some may give a green light response. And this is how that's laid out in Acts 17. Verse 32, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So you just have to understand as we share the gospel in this world, there are going to be some who are hostile to its message. They're going to mock us for what we believe and they're going to reject it outright. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So not quite moved into the place of belief, but there's, there's interest. Maybe the light is, is starting to be a little bit dim. The blinders are starting to come off. They've got questions they want to learn more. It's sort of a, a yellow light response, but this is the hope once again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. And this is how we, we, we just have to recognize church as followers of Christ and understand that the only failure you and I have in sharing the gospel is the failure to share the gospel. Can I just take the burden off of your shoulders for just a moment? You are not responsible for the salvation of the world. It's Christ's job. That that, that is totally a sovereign work of the Lord. The job of the sower is not to inspect the soil, but to indiscriminately scatter the seed. And we just have to trust that as we share the message of the gospel, to give us so much confidence in the word of God that it's going to go forth, it's going to accomplish everything he's promised that it would, that salvation ultimately is of the Lord. As Jesus says in the gospel of John, he says, my sheep will hear my voice and they will answer me. He says, I will not lose a single one that the father has given to me. He says, all that the father has given me will come to me. Salvation is a work of the Lord. So the only failure to share the gospel is the failure to share it. And this should give us so much confidence that the pressure and the burden is not on us. You know why churches compromise the word of God? Because they don't trust that salvation is of the Lord. Bottom line, they think it's in their hands and they've got to take control and we've got to do things here in the 21st century to make this a little bit more palatable. Salvation is a work of the Lord and our responsibility simply is to scatter the seed of the message. So so let's just break this down because John offers a subtle warning here. There's a great promise in in verse 12 that he leaves us with. All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But then there's a warning. We don't become children of God, he says, of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So let's just break this down here. John stresses, we are not born again as Christians by blood. So, so this is what that means. It means that you do not receive faith in Jesus by family or national heritage. He says, we are not born again as Christians by the flesh. So it does not matter how much holy energy you and I exert. There's no amount of goodness within us that's ever going to be good enough to earn salvation and work our way into heaven. He says, we're not born again as Christians by the will of man. That this can't be my decision for you. This can't be your parents' decision before, for you. No one can make you believe in Jesus or believe in Jesus for you. So just to really double down here and drive home the point, you need to understand you are not a Christian because your parents are Christians. You are not a Christian because your grandfather was a pastor. You are not a Christian because your family's name is etched on a church pew or carved into the very brick and mortar of the church building. You are not a Christian because you were baptized or dedicated as an infant. You are not a Christian because you were baptized as an adult because baptism doesn't save you. Salvation is of the Lord. It's through our faith in Jesus Christ and baptism is an outward expression that we have been saved. You are not a Christian because your name is on a membership roll. You are not a Christian, thank heavens, because of your political affiliation. You are not a Christian because you are an American. You are not a Christian because you have repeated a prayer or walked an aisle when you were five years old at vacation Bible school. Salvation in Jesus Christ is not a goal that we achieve by work. It is a gift we receive by faith. We become children by believing in his name. What is it about this name? How is it that simply believing it is not by any work that we can do, but simply by our faith and belief in his name? How is it that this name is powerful to save? Well, this is what Jesus says about his name. Seven times throughout John's gospel, he makes ridiculous, staggering claims about his identity and who he is. He says in, in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the door for the sheep. John 10:7. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. John 10:11, I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 14:6, I am the true vine, Jesus. Yeshua means the Lord is my salvation. Salvation and resurrection are not just what Jesus does. Salvation and resurrection are who Jesus is. There is eternal life in his name. And salvation is totally a work of a sovereign God who draws us to him and opens up our hearts and our minds and removes the blinders of the God of this age so that we can see the light and the hope. Of the gospel, So the true light has come to us. It's been revealed to us to show us what's real and to show us what's authentic, to save us from the, the, the shadows and the, the emptiness and the superficiality of this world. And so because the true light has come to us, this is how, what this means we can become. First, it means we can become engaged in his mission. Because Christ has come to us, he's he's called us into his mission. We can become engaged in the work that God is is doing. When Jesus tells his disciples, you are the light of the world, what he's doing is he's inviting us into the work that God has been doing since the dawn of creation, which is shining light into the darkness. So, Lord willing, uh, in January, we're going to spend the first six weeks of the year in prayer, and uh, we're going to study in depth uh, the words of Jesus from the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen through twenty. Um, a couple months ago, Dustin and I were up in North Carolina for for a brief conference. We had an opportunity to stop by Southeastern Seminary in the Wake Forest area, and uh, inside the mission center at Southeastern, there's a screen that gives live updates on Gospel Advance throughout. The world. And so it's this screen that right in front of you, the numbers change every few seconds, and that's just based on statistics uh, regarding gospel advance. And you, you just stand there. We, we were there for maybe five minutes, and it's just this incredibly sobering and gut-checking reality. And so this is from a couple months ago, but as we stood there that day, the global population stood at 7,598,622,724. Those who had heard the gospel but not believed it stood at 2,647,363,626. And those with little to no access to the gospel don't have an adequate opportunity to hear the gospel. 4,022,491,153. I stood there looking at those numbers that, that day, and I couldn't help but get a little bit choked up as I looked at my own heart and I, I considered my own life and. And just the the, the state of, of the church in and, and our country and i just i just couldn't help but it, ash It's like father what, what is it going to take to wake us up that today millions of even professing believers still lack a bible in their own language they have little to no access to the preaching of god's word or to the message of the gospel many of them this morning all over the world they'll travel two three four hours just because they heard somebody's got john one and two in their language that they're so desperately hungry for the word of of God. And the longer we do this, the longer I do this, the, the more burdened I am for us to become a church. Well, hundreds of people will rise up and say, I want to give everything for God's glory. I want to leverage everything that God has handed me in this life, and I want to use it to make the gospel known in my world for us to be a church that prays fervently and gives sacrificially and preaches faithfully and goes joyfully. And so just, just to warm up to where we're going next month, you know, I, I really believe in this room today, maybe you're, you're 10 years old or you're 90 years old, regardless of where, I really believe in this room today that there are pastors and there are teachers and there are evangelists and missionaries and worship leaders that God is gonna rise up from our midst and we're going to send them into our Jerusalem right here in Beaufort or into Judea and Samaria throughout our state, or even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Parents, I'm praying that some of us one day, as I think of my own boys, and some of us will have the privilege of sending our own children to the darkest, most unreached corners of this earth because they don't belong to us, they belong to him. And I believe that this is happening. So so my my hope and my prayer this morning is is for maybe even just one person in, in this room, whether you're, you're 10 years old or you're 90 years old, and regardless of how impossible it seems or, or how much it doesn't make sense or you don't understand how it's gonna work, where it's gonna, but you would just humbly this morning in faith, lay your life before the Lord as a blank check and just say to him, here I am, send me. I don't know where, I don't know when, I don't know how, but whatever you say, I will go. Because he's come to us, we can become engaged in his mission. And second, it means that we can become grounded in his word. Can know his word. So just as promised these last few weeks, this is a point of application every single week that we're in John chapter one. So the last few weeks, we've been building up to a challenge uh, for you to commit to reading through the entire Bible for all of us to do this as a church family together in, in 2020, because we've seen the last couple of weeks, Jesus is the word, capital W, who became flesh. He is our vision and this word is God's voice. And so we wanna be a church that knows what God has spoken to his people so that we can more faithfully reveal him to our world that we would be breathing in what God has breathed out, and we can speak His life and light into a dark and dying world. And so, uh, th- this past week, that went out via email on Friday, where you could sign up for that and find the link to download the reading plan that we're going to be following together as a church family. But even this morning, if you weren't on that email, if you'll just take your next steps card, put your name and your email address, and then uh, under your prayer request, just put the words Bible Reading Challenge. Drop that in the bin in the back room as you go. We'll sign you up uh, for that as, as we go. And you know, th- this morning, I-, I was just curious because that email went out on, on Friday and I was just curious where we are as, as a church family. And honestly, just thinking like, oh man, it's, just, it's busy time of the year and that's probably not gotten picked up. And again, statistically, MailChimp says only 50% of y'all read my emails. And so I'm kind of like, oh man, like is, is this gonna be you know, important to anybody? I, mean, I I checked in there this morning and just a couple days in, we've already got 50 people signed up for this. I want to commit to reading God's Word to go. Some entire families reading it together We're already hearing about how some community groups want to go into this together. It's group leaders, I just want to challenge you and in your groups, like, let this be part of your discussion every single week. Before you come in, and before you talk about the sermon that week, talk about what you read and let's let's all be a church family. Like, we annoy each other with little text messages. It's like, hey, did you read today? And it's like, well, quit being a loser and go read because I love you. And, and reminding us to, to continually daily be centering ourselves on the Word of God. Hold each other accountable because if we want to know 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 the word, capital W, then we have to know this word. So we want to become grounded in this word, and I want us to be a church that captures a vision for what it looks like to be a people who are saturated with the word of God. Third, because the true light has come to us, we can become humble as his servants. There's a key distinction in verses 1 through 13 that we need to pay really, really close attention to. John, the disciple who wrote this book, again, this is uh, distinct from John the Baptist. Those are two separate characters. So John, who wrote this book, is careful to let us know in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus is a man who is also God, and John was a man who was sent from God. So there's a key distinction here. Verse 8 says that, that he was not the light. He just came to bear witness about the light, and it's important for us to not get this backwards and to understand our role in God's mission. So just to take us back to the opening here, you and I are not Apollo 11, we're Apollo 8. And just to, to make sure, maybe, maybe even just to take it a step further, like, I don't, maybe we don't even need to think of ourselves in Apollo terms. I think compared to the fullness of God's glory, referred uh, to in Jesus Christ, revealed in Jesus Christ, if Jesus is Apollo 11, you and I are like bottle rockets, Right? I mean, we're, we're, we cannot hold a candle to the wind of the glory of God. We are a glimpse of what is to come. At best, again, we're not the ones putting footprints on the moon, but we are the ones circling around it and sharing with a watching and listening world what it is that we're seeing because we've been sent as witnesses to prepare the way. And we can become humble as his servants as we understand our role in his mission. And, and you look at the life of John. He had no question about who he was. That there was no question in mind in John's mind about who he was and what his responsibility was. His ministry was exploding. I mean, just blowing up, people coming way out in the wilderness, way away from their comfort and way away from convenience to hear the message that he was preaching, to be baptized by him. And yet when he's given the opportunity in Matthew chapter 3, he's asked, Hey, are you the Messiah? This is pretty incredible. Like, this is amazing, all these mighty works. Are you the Messiah? And how does John respond? He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, the one who's coming after me is way mightier than I am. He says, I am not even fit to carry the man's sandals. He's like, I'm baptizing you here with water. He's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's no confusion about who he is. This is made abundantly clear again in John chapter 3. So John has built up this, this massive ministry, but now Christ has come onto the scene. Christ has, has now made his way in. And, and what happens? This massive group of people that was following John is suddenly now following Jesus. And so one of John's followers comes to him and says, John, wh- wh- where's everybody going? I mean, the, the, the ministry is disappearing and everybody's leaving to go follow Christ. And how does John respond to John 3.30? He says, this joy of mine is now complete. John's joy was completed, not in the size of his ministry, but the number of people who left him to follow Christ. And so he just says very simply, he says, my role right now is to decrease so that he can increase. It's for me to become less so that he can become more. In church, we cannot get this backwards individually as followers of Christ or collectively as a church God's doing some pretty incredible things within our church family that we're excited about, but let's make no mistake here. You and I may have the message, but we ourselves are not the message. We may know the true light and have seen the true light, but we ourselves are not the light. We are not the savior of anybody's world. That is Jesus. But what happens that the joy in this is that if we will decrease in our need for personal glory, we'll increase our capacity for joy. John said his joy is complete. And I want us to be a church that finds its joy by holding all things, every resource that we have, every person the Lord sends our way, holding everything with an open hand, understanding that our role is to be managers and stewards of every good gift that God has given, but ultimately to be held with an open hand to be released and sent into this world for the advance of his name and his glory. Because there's absolutely no greater joy for us to have in this life than to know Christ and to make him known. And we can embrace the second seat, being confident and knowing that that's the place that we'll find our greatest joy. And last, because the true light has been revealed to us, because he's come to us, it means we can become children of his family. Such an incredible promise. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Ephesians 2 says that apart from Christ, we were dead in our sins, that we were children of wrath. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have moved from being objects of the Father's wrath to being recipients of his grace, to being assigned a new identity as his sons and his daughters. And so my question for us this morning as we close is simple. Have you believed in his name? Have you believed in his name? Your salvation is not the result of your birth. It is not the result of your heritage. It is not the result of your good works. It's not a decision that I can make for you or that anyone else can make for you. Have you turned away willfully from both your sinful rebellion and from your religious working and hung the hopes of your soul entirely on the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his invitation to us this morning is to call on his name, because it's in his name that we'll find our salvation. So Father, we we come to you this morning. God, will you give us hearts that that, that are grieved over indifference, hearts that, that seek and desire to be set ablaze For your name and for your glory, that we would burn brightly the light of your gospel, Lord, that our hearts would not be cold and distant and indifferent. Father, that you would spare us from being a lukewarm church and a lukewarm people. Lord, give us boldness, give us confidence, help us to to go from this place, even this morning, in the promise of the Great Commission that you are with us always to the end of the age, that you do not call us to do anything that you don't also empower us to do. So would we, as your people, as your body, as your bride, would we leave this place today in the confidence and the power of the Holy Spirit? Lord, would you free us from the burden of feeling like the salvation of the world is on our shoulders because it's not? Would we recognize that we have the message, but we are not the message? You're the message. You're what we want people to see. You are who we want others to believe. So, Father, even in the face of the world's hostility, in the face of its indifference, in the face of its confusion, even in the face of its outright rejection, regardless of the cost, Father, will you make us a people who are faithful to the end, who boldly anchor ourselves to the truth of your word, to the hope of your coming, Help us to live with eternity in view. To live each day fueled by what you have done for us and giving us Jesus and fueled by the hope that you will come to us again. As we shift into our time of of communion this morning, I'll just uh, invite you to keep your heads bowed with me here for a moment as we just enter into a time of, of, of confession and reflection, repentance, celebration for what God has... Done for us. The true light has come to us. Would you just now, would you just humbly before him, invite him to shine the light of his holiness into the darkest recesses of your heart? The book of Hebrews says that God's word is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces us to the places that we could never hope to see ourselves. Just invite God to shine the light of his holiness into the darkness our hearts. As God reveals our sin, as he reveals our our rebellion and our religious pride, would we humbly confidently lay our sin at his feet. Confess to him that we have sinned, that we are sinners. We do that with an assurance of pardon that we find in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just. He'll forgive us of all sin, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So would we, to that end, ask that the Lord would grant us hearts of genuine repentance, of turning from our sin, of not just being sorry from our sin of our sin, but, but turning from it, running to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, Father, in glad and humble thanksgiving, we once again thank you that you so love the world, you gave us your only son, that we could call on his name and be saved. We thank you that he came to this earth to live the perfect life we could never live, to stand in our place to die the death that we deserve. Three days later, to triumph over the grave. We thank you for the invitation to repent of our sins and in faith call on his name for salvation. And so, Father, I pray that that would be true for every person in this room today. Lord, will you open every eye to the gospel, every heart to the gospel. And every mouth here today would confess that you are Lord to the praise of your glory. So, fathers, we come to the table this morning. Would you let this message of the gospel fall fresh in our hearts once again as we rejoice and sing in Emmanuel, who is God with us. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts now as we worship. It's in your name we pray.